Mark 1. Conversations at the speed of sound. So he learned to fly on the Tiger in Launceston in the middle of winter. <laughs> it, was, it was a bit cool. <laughs> a bit cool, yeah. Yeah. Welcome to this episode of Mac One, the podcast of the Queensland Air Museum Caloundra. I'm your host, Gary Hills. I'm a QAM volunteer. Now, you know, we, we get to listen to the most interesting people in this podcast, don't we? Recently, I sat down with centenarian Merv Draffin. Yes, I said centenarian. Merv recently celebrated his 100th birthday. And I happen to know that his good friends arranged to have his birthday cake adorned with a specially built scale model of a Vickers Wellington bomber, the twin-engine bomber used by the RAF in World War II, in Merv's case, in the markings of RAF No. 99 Squadron, in which he, as an RAAF pilot, flew. And you'll hear about that soon. Now, Merv's longtime friend and fellow RAAF pilot, Air Vice Marshal retired David Dunlop, who also happens to be a QAM volunteer, you will have heard his voice a couple of times in, uh, in the Mac One podcast episodes. Dave sat in on the conversation with us, and he was able to assist some of Merv's recollections by referring to Merv's diaries and logbooks from the time. So you'll hear Dave also in this recording. And notably, about halfway through the episode, you'll hear Dave read a few select personal diary entries that Merv has given permission for us to hear. Merv is a gentleman, as you'll gather when you hear him talk, and it was a real treat to be able to gather as much as we could of Merv's story to be added to our growing archive of oral history episodes at the museum. Merv's recorded conversation along with a transcript and some photos of Merv and excerpts from his logbooks and diaries will be available as soon as we can collect everything together in the QAM oral history section of our library and online via our website. But before we get to Merv and Dave, I really have to tell you that next week's episode, the final episode for season two, is going to be an absolute cracker. I got to sit down with Air Vice Marshal retired David Rogers and Air Commodore retired Peter Grouder to talk about the time, 44 years ago almost to the day, when they were forced to eject from their RAAF F-111 after a fire broke out in the wheel well. They came down in open water off the coast of Auckland, New Zealand, and they tell the tale. How the amazing crew module escape system worked on the F-111s and what their personal experience was of that ejection. What an amazing way to round out the 16 episodes of Season 2. So that's next week. So I started out by asking Merv to tell us where he was born and when he first knew 
that he wanted to be a pilot. Were you born in Melbourne? In Melbourne, yes. Okay. Heidelberg. Heidelberg, oh yeah. And then um, how old were you? Can you remember when you first wanted to fly? Oh, it must have been at 17 or 18. Yeah. So did you join the Air Force to do that or did you learn to fly some other way? No, I joined the Air Force. Okay. So do you remember what was the first aeroplane you flew? Tiger Moth. The Tiger Moth. You trained on the Tiger, yeah. Yeah. Because you, if I remember rightly, you uh, actually joined the Air Force on Anzac Day in 1942. Is that right? Yeah, that's the day you joined. Is that right? And he went off to do his, what you described as your knife and fork course. And that was at Summers in Victoria. And then after he graduated from there, he went to number one initial training school um, and got posted on to number seven elementary training school at Western Junction Aerodrome. Where is that? Western Junction Aerodrome is now Launceston. Okay. Yes. I can imagine. And uh, so you're learning, you get your training in the Tiger Moth. Yeah. You're, you're, the, Australia's at war, 1942. So you knew when you joined up that you were going to be going to war. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yes. So after the Tiger Moth, what so happened then? After he finished the Tiger, now, whereas a lot of uh, air crew at the time would have then gone to Canada, say, to do their continuation of their training. In, in Merv's case, he actually went just across to Point Cook, across to Melbourne, near home, and, and that was in October of 42. And this is with the Empire Air Training Scheme? Yes. The EATS? That's right, but Merv did his training in Australia yep. as opposed to Rhodesia or Canada, Canada or, or somewhere yeah. else. Okay. So at Point Cook, he converted onto the Oxford, and then he spent three and a half months at Point Cook learning to fly the Oxford, but also finishing his pilot's course, and was posted to go to the UK, as did so many of the others. But he went via America, and then when he got there, he did a bit of, uh, I think it was described as, hurry up and wait. Yes, And that was at Bournemouth and at Brighton. And uh, most of the Australians finished up at Brighton where I think they stayed in one of the big hotels. But I gather it wasn't as it was for holidays at Brighton. It was about six to a room and they slept on palliasses. This is um, late 42. Okay. Oh, Brighton, eh? Brighton, yeah. The pier at Brighton. Yeah. yeah. So he did a refresher course over there on Oxford's, and that was at Little Risington, and that was from I. That was then in forty three, um, June June to August forty three, and after he'd finished his refresher onto Oxford's, but also expanding um, his operational capability. He got posted to the Wellington. Of course, that was called in the UK, it was the Wimpy. The Wimpy. Wimpy. Yeah, Wimpy. okay. And that was at Morton on the Marsh. And he did that in late 
43. You must have many fond memories of the Wellington. Oh, yes. Merv. Yeah. Yeah. Nice aeroplane. Oh, yes. Yeah. Easy to fly or hard to fly? How, did, how would you describe it? Well, I suppose they, we took it as our, our course. Yeah. yeah. I suppose at, the, at that time, you have to remember that flying it was very physical. Mm. No powered controls. And so um, the pilot had to work all the time. You just couldn't plug in the autopilot and have a bit of a sleep and a coffee. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the Vickers Wellington was a twin-engine, long-range, medium bomber. It was designed in the mid-1930s at the Vickers Armstrong factory by chief designer Rex Pearson. A key feature of the Wellington uh, was its geodetic airframe fuselage structure, which was principally designed by Barnes Wallace, the man who went on to invent the so-called bouncing bomb. Now, although it was superseded by the big four-engine heavy bombers, such as the Lancasters, the Stirlings and the Halifaxes, the Wimpy was the only British bomber that was produced for the duration of the war and of having been produced in a greater quantity than any other British-built bomber. Wellingtons remained as first-line equipment when the war ended, even though they were then in secondary roles. So, Merv, you got transferred or posted straight across to the Far East, I, I believe. Is that right? To India, was it? Yes, to, to India, yes. And, and that was with 99 Squadron? 99. Now, yeah. I believe can, there was a story I hear about the trip across from the UK across to India. There was, there was an incident... Somewhere around North Africa or in the Mediterranean? Yes, so they, by then, uh, 1944, um, or early 1944, North African campaign had been completed, so they could fly around France and Spain and then across North Africa and finished up landing. They hopped it along the way, but finished up at Cairo. Mm -hmm. I think the story goes, Merv, that... As you were going past Trebrook, you decided that you'd go and have a look. Oh, even yeah. Though, even though it wasn't authorised. And and I, and Lex ha, uh, even has a photo that Merv took of Trebrook. But, but we're told that when he got to Cairo and landed at the RAF station in Cairo... Uh, he was told that the station commander wished to have a chat with him. I hope you weren't in trouble, Merv, were you? Possibly. <laughs> Keeping out of it. <laughs> Trying to keep out of it. <laughs> and I gather after he was questioned about why did you go to Brook, and he said, well, of course, the Australians had been there and we thought it was a good idea. Uh, the station commander dismissed him and was muttering something about those bloody colonials. Bloody colonials. <laughs> I'd be proud to be numbered amongst the bloody colonials, oh, I'd have yes. to say. <laughs> no good going so close and yeah. not having a look at the place. Told we shouldn't have gone there. Yeah. After we'd had a look. Better to ask for, for forgiveness than to ask for permission, I suppose. <laughs> 
So uh, no, no real trouble there. You were just uh, sent on your way after that. That's right. And yeah, so so when you got ninety nine squadron, um, was based at Jasor uh, in Bengal, and the reason they were positioned there was so that they could assist in the campaign against the Japanese, and ninety nine squadron. That most of their tasking was to uh, actually attack the supply lines with the Japanese, which was the Thai-Burma Railway, well known because so many Australian um, prisoners of war died in building that further to the south. Yes. A 99 Squadron at that time was tasked to actually cut that supply line. So Merv's operational tour on, with 99 on Wellington um, at that time was attacking um, the railway line, the Supplies, stations and supply Ammunition depots. dumps. Exactly. Was that night flying or day flying at that time? No, that was day flying. Day flying. Okay. So, so you kept a diary and a bit of a scrapbook, Merv, with uh, newspaper cuttings and all that kind of thing, I believe? keeping up with uh, what was happening and recording a diary. I think pilots kept a logbook, but did everyone keep a diary? Well, I think we, for our own personal use. Yep. And just looking at it, it seems that in that uh, part of the world, the local newspapers often would have an article the following day after they raided a particular target. So... Looking at Merv's diary, um, he's got cuttings from the newspaper, mm. some photos, and then for each of his operational missions, he actually um, put in some comments. So you can go through and look at the logbook, the official yes. version, which is very analytical, I suppose. But then if you look at his diary, it, it'll say a little bit more about the target area. Helicopters, helicopters, helicopters. January the 21st, 2023 is the Queensland Air Museum Helicopters Open Day. Don't miss it. Between 10 and 4 that day, it's going to be all helicopters. We'll have all of our military and civilian helicopters open with guides who have flown in or worked on these aircraft and have great stories to tell. We'll run engines, we'll have helicopter simulators and other activities for the kids. You'll be able to book a joy flight over Caloundra in one of the Ocean View Robinson helicopters and so much more. Mark your diary now, January the 21st, 2023, for the QAM Helicopters Open Day. See you there. Let's have a little bit of a listen to some of these diary entries. So the first one that I've picked here is May the 14th, and the target is indoor. 1944. That's right, 1944, so early 1944. Back on the night shifts. Target for this night, a railway station, through which vital supplies pass. I went out screening a new crew and had nothing much to do, more or less. 
so sat in, in the front turret over the target area. Just doing the bombing run-up when I heard a terrific popping noise. This turned out to be the loss of our starboard engine. I told the pilot to jettison the bomb load and the crew to get rid of guns and ammunition as we were losing height. Took over controls and managed to pick up a bit of height. This was essential as we had to get back over the hills to home base. After some time the crook engine picked up a bit and helped us through to make base quite safely. Then another one and this is from August later in the year. August the 9th. Kayang. Weather was pretty grim this day and when we arrived over the target area Ground was not visible because of rain and cloud until we went down to 5,000 feet where we were lucky to see the Chinwin River which we followed until we reached the target. Made quite a few attempts to do a run-up and finally successfully bombed. We were cheesed off with the conditions and decided to vent our feelings so we went down and shot the place up with all eight machine guns. This was possible as there was plenty of cloud for cover. Got hell of a shock when someone bombed while we were down below and the concussion shook the kite. Felt quite happy over our little bit of fun though, so thought this was a good op. And the bomb load on that night was 4,500 pounds. And then another one, which is on August the 15th, and this is the last of Merv's operational missions with number 99 squadron flying the Wellington. The trip today was one of great importance. It was the last trip for Wellingtons in this theatre of war. Also the last trip for my tour of operations. The weather was absolutely wizard so there was no excuse. Target easily found. We had a very good stick of bombs which covered the whole of the target area. Went on to another town where we dropped propaganda nickels, that's leaflets, to the Japs. Let go with all eight machine guns at the main target and went right down to do it, just to let them know that the wimpy still had some sting in it even though this was its last trip. And the bomb load was 4,250 pounds of bombs and 250 pounds of nickels. In other words, the propaganda leaflets. In one of the diary entries I can remember, it said it had a bit of trouble with the aircraft, but they, they, they were on their way home. But Merv had got a Christmas a, a fruitcake from his mother. So on the way home, the crew ate the fruitcake. <laughs> with, your, with your permission, I hope. <laughs> well, that's, so that's the diaries and so many interesting things in there, I'm sure, that uh, for a lot of people. Um, I, I gather you weren't just uh, flying Wellingtons, though. There, there was a time when you were required to fly a different aircraft. I think it was the C-47. The, at that time... Um, the, both the British and the Japanese had been successful in cutting each other's supply line. 
the Japanese by troops going through the jungle around to the back and cutting the supply line. And for the British, uh, it was 99 Squadron and the other aircraft that had managed to cut the railway. And for the British, they were doing a lot of the resupply at that time using transport aircraft, in this case the C-47, mm. the Dakotas. Mm. And the British squadron doing that, uh, the crews were getting quite exhausted. So if you look at Merv's diary, it tells about how they were asked overnight to go up to uh, where the C-47, the Dakota squadrons were operating, and you were to relieve the crew by learning how to fly the C-47 and drop parachutes. And I remember you you told me that... um, it only took a few days. So one day for formal conversion, another day with someone sitting with you, and then away you went. So wow. the crews, uh, basically the bomber crews became transport crews uh, over the, a couple of days. Mm-hmm. And I think you said that compared to flying the Wimpy, flying the Dakota was like driving a... Buick. A Buick. Not a Cadillac. Uh, no, an American no, Buick. Buick. What an interesting description. Well, it was like flying a Buick. Yeah. Beautiful aircraft. After the Wimpy, every time you got into one, you thought, oh, <laughs> nothing but the best. <laughs> I, I gather you know, the Wimpy was, was hard work and the uh, the DAC, of course, was still hard work, but it... it Less flying characteristics were a little better than. Oh, yes. Now we're in 1945 now. We must be getting. Or are we still back in 44? I think it was 44. Okay. Yes. 44, was it? 1944. And uh, the Wellington was coming to the end of its operational time. Right. And looking at the history books, 99 Squadron was to be re-equipped with B-24s, Liberators. Liberators. quite a big jump to go from a a twin-engine light or medium bomber, British, to a rather large B-24 consolidated aircraft. And before you did that, Merv, I believe you flew, if it wasn't the last, it was almost the last mission in the Wimpies that were the, for that it war. It probably that right? was. Okay, so what a, what an amazing time you were living through, Merv, and, and serving. What an incredible time. For somebody who's a little younger than 100, you know, um, I read about these things in the history books or I see them in movies, but you lived it. You, you experienced it and you took the risks doing what you did. Oh, yes. Yes, we were well, the young blokes. Yeah. That's what you Took did. As, That's what yeah, you did. That was our job. Yep, you were needed and so you did it. Yeah. Merv um, completed his wartime flying on the 27th of June 1945. Okay. And at that stage he'd completed 1,101 flying hours since he joined the RAF on Anzac Day in 1942. Well, thanks. Thanks very much, Merv. It's great to meet you. Wonderful to be able to talk. What a gentleman. 
So folks, that's our episode. There was more to our conversation, which eventually will be added to our oral history project, but I wanted our podcast listeners to hear a bit of his story. Merv was one of only a few Australian pilots who served with the RAF in No. 99 Squadron, and if you'd like to know more about that squadron, you can try and get hold of a book entitled Each Tenacious, The History of No. 99 Squadron, 1917 to 76, by A.G. Edgerly, published in 1993. Next week, the final episode of Season 2 of the Mac One Podcast. Remember, we're open at the Queensland Air Museum Pathfinder Drive, Caloundra, every day except Christmas Day and Easter Friday from 10am to 4pm. Come on in and see us. We have over 80 aircraft on display on six acres, aircraft engines, artefacts, displays of all kinds, and you'll get to meet some of the most interesting people uh, who volunteer there on a daily basis. We'd love to meet you. Come on in and see us soon.